Well, listen, we've been in a little series. Um, I have had so much fun with this series, can I tell you? Uh, and it's just, uh, I mean, just you guys might be getting nothing out of it, I don't know, but I'm getting a ton out of it, okay? Uh, and I actually woke up yesterday morning, and I had my, my notes for this weekend written like a week ago, and I woke up yesterday morning, and the Lord said, I want you to do this. I'm like, okay, we're going to do that, you know? And, uh, and so I just want to, we're going to kind of take um, a, uh, kind of our next step, unpacking this letter to the church in Ephesus. And if you remember... Just by way of recap, week one, we really took a look at this idea that God has given us a new status, a new identity. That identity is received, not, anyone remember? Achieved, right? Come on, it rhymes. Not earned doesn't rhyme with received, right? <laughs> it's a new identity that is received, not achieved. Oh my goodness, we're going to have to work at this. What is it? Received, not achieved. Oh, man, you guys are so good. Give yourselves a round of applause. You're awesome. But, uh, but that was week one. It's new identity is received, not achieved. But what we discovered last week in week two was that this new identity wasn't an identity that you receive as a lone ranger, that it's like, okay, well, now I got my new identity, my new status. I'm just going to work this all out together. And if you remember, we had a whiteboard and we were drawing all kinds of stuff last week. But the big idea that we were trying to communicate and what Paul was trying to communicate in this letter to the church in Ephesus is that you don't just have a new identity individualistically. Your new identity is corporate. It's familial. In other words, words, you are a part of something bigger than yourself. You're part of a new family. And Paul unveils this mystery. This new family is called the church. And so we recognize that Paul has this kind of unveiling or un, uh, revealing of this mystery that just is progressively being revealed or unveiled throughout this letter that he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And so uh, this week, I want to kind of take the next step. But before I do that, um, and you guys are not going to be surprised about this, I need to just go back to last week, and I need to cover something that I didn't get the opportunity to cover last week, okay? That surprises you, doesn't it? Like, really, Gareth? You know, like you couldn't finish your sermon, like it was long enough, right? But, but one of the things that, that, that I want to just kind of touch on a little bit because it will be important for what we're going to talk about this week is that one of the things that Paul helps us understand in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 20 through 22 is how is it that this new family is built? In fact, this is what he says in, uh, in verse 20 of chapter 2. He says that this new family, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. It's, remember, in him. Remember that? In him, in Christ, in the beloved. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And so what Paul is helping us understand here is, well, how does this thing called the church actually get built? See, the church isn't God or isn't man's idea. It's not Gareth's idea. It's not some uh, ancient apostle's idea. No, the church is God's idea. It's God's design. God has a blueprint. And, and what he just tells us in verse 21, or sorry, verse 20 and 21 of, the, the, that of chapter 2 is that it gets built on the apostles and the prophets. It gets built with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now for Paul, apostles and prophets, 
Those are two very important words. Because in the Old Testament, the mouthpiece of God in the Old Testament were the prophets. That, that how God oftentimes spoke was through the prophets. In the New Testament, the apostles. And what Paul was wanting the reader to understand is that the way in which the church gets built, the church gets built, look what it says, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Old Testament, New Testament, what were they both doing? They both handled or communicated the word of God. And what Paul is wanting the reader to understand, what he wants you and I to understand, that this entity, this new family, this body of believers called the church gets built upon the word of God. It doesn't get built on our ideas. It doesn't get built on kind of cultural trends. It doesn't get built on what's the most popular opinion in the room and that's how it gets built. No, no, no. The church gets built on the foundation of the word of God. And in a world where the word of God is being so undermined, where the word of God is being so uh, almost set to the side, well, that, that's not really relevant. You know, you've got some 17-year-old who plays Minecraft, uh, you know, who said, I don't know if I believe thousands of years of ancient history and kind of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think there's this other idea that I read on the internet, and that's a much better idea of how we ought to do church, right? It's like, no, 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 it's built on the foundation of the word of God. And every one of our lives ought to be built on the foundation of the word of God. It's the word of God that is the authority upon which our lives ought to be built. Anything else we build on, the Bible describes as sinking sand. I want to build on a rock. And what Paul wants us to understand is how it gets built is the foundation of the word of God with Christ Jesus, remember King Jesus, as the chief cornerstone. And when you read the Bible, Old Testament and New, you recognize that the hero of the story, the focus of the Bible, is Jesus Christ. That everything passes through Messiah Jesus. That he is the chief cornerstone. And so the church, the body of Christ, gets built upon Christ, the living word, and the written word, right? as declared through the prophets and the apostles. But here's what's mind-blowing, because he continues on in verse 22, and he says this, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. And so he's saying the foundation of this whole thing is the word of God. It's Jesus Christ as his chief cornerstone. And then you and I, who are followers of Jesus, get included into this new family, that the new family continues to be built through you and I, through you and I's relationships, through you and I's lives, through you and I's surrender to Jesus Christ. And so that, that's going to become important as we move into what we're going to talk about today, because what I want us to take a look at is to understand then, well, if, if I have this new identity and God places me in this new family called the church, what's the purpose? What's the reason? What's the end goal behind all of this? And Paul actually addresses this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15. It's a verse that we touched on last week. But he said this. He said that his purpose, God's purpose, 
having declared all of this, this new identity and this new family that he's made you a part of, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. That effectively, God, God's purpose in giving you a new status as a follower of Jesus, in giving you a new identity as an adopted son or an adopted daughter, placing you as a solitary member into the family of God, the household of faith. God's purpose is to create effectively a new human race. A new race of humans, a people from every kind of background, people who might have, uh, might have even been enemies formerly that are now marked by their shared identity in Christ. And so what we have, we have a new identity, and I, I wrote this thought down and I put it in a slide so that you could see what we're talking about here, is that we have a new identity displayed in a new family called the church for the purpose of forming a new kind of of humanity. Like Paul is just unveiling this throughout this letter. You have a new identity displayed in a new family called the church for the purpose of forming a new kind of humanity here on earth. And what we discover is that you and I, we together have become something brand new. In fact, Paul's challenge throughout the letter to the Ephesians, uh, and in fact, basically throughout all of his letters that he writes, is that the challenge is that we are to become who we already are in Christ. But Paul's trying to help us understand, hey, you as a follower of Jesus, we as the body of Christ, as this new family called the church, we are to become who we already are in Christ. And that's a lot harder than it sounds, isn't it? Just become. I want to introduce you to somebody. Um, we can throw the picture up. This is Crystal Jones. Uh, Crystal Jones, um, she lives in Atlanta. She's now a principal uh, of a school, but when she started in education, uh, she started working for an organization called Teach for America. Uh, and what Teach for America would do is that they would place new teachers into lower income, maybe some inner city, uh, some schools that don't have the resources that maybe other schools would have. And so she ends up at a school uh, in, a, in, a, in a lower income part of the city. And, uh, and so she kind of steps in full of gusto, you know, and she's going to kind of help teach these kids. And it's kind of her starting her educational journey. And what she's going to discover is that she's going to get an education as she begins to embark on this journey. And so this school that she gets placed into, it didn't have a kindergarten. So a lot of these first graders, man, they didn't even know their ABCs, never mind have the ability to do some basic reading and understand some basic words. And so these kids were already behind, right? There maybe were some resources that hadn't been afforded to them or hadn't been given to them or they didn't have the opportunity to take advantage of. And so they are already behind. And so she's starting out the school year, uh, late August, early September, and trying her hardest to try and help these kids, realizing that they're so far behind and she's trying to get them to finish first grade with a first grade level. And one afternoon or one lunchtime, she's, uh, she's watching her kids from her classroom out in the playground. They're out in recess. And one of the, what she discovered about the kids was that first graders wanted to hang out and be like third graders. 
And she, you know, she discovered that, man, you know, what is it about that first grader that wants to be like the third grader? Now, I don't know if you've ever had this as a parent, you know, um, you're trying to be like, you, you know, I was trying to be the best dad that I could be and I'm playing with my kids on the playground and all of that kind of stuff, you know, that's good and that's fun. But when a kid who's just a few years older shows up, all of a sudden my kid wants to go kind of hang out and play with that kid. Why is that? Well, because that kid's just like me but he's just a little bit faster, a little bit bigger, and a little bit smarter. And you know what? I want to be like him. And what she discovered as she watched kids playing on this playground was that these first graders wanted to be third graders. And so she, the next day, uh, she shows up and she has a completely new plan for how she's going to help these kids. And so the kids are sitting in the classroom and she says, this year, kids, my goal for you is to become third graders by the end of your first grade year. And all the kids are like, that's cool. I want to be a third grader. Third graders are smarter, they're faster, they're stronger, they're cooler. I want to be a third grader, right? And so she started uh, this past, this creating this culture where she was going to help these first graders become third graders by the end of the year. So she shaped the curriculum around them becoming third graders, right? She also instituted a system about how they would refer to each other in the classroom. So no longer did they refer to each other by their first name. They referred to each other by scholar last name. So scholar Jones or scholar Gilpin or scholar Smith, right? And this is how they referred to each other in the classroom. And then at the start of every day, every morning, she would have them recite what it meant to be a scholar. A scholar is someone who lives to learn and is really good at it. And so she was beginning to change the culture in this classroom. She's creating for them kind of a new goal, a new identity, something that they would work, work towards. And what she began to discover is absolutely amazing. By November, it, it was, she started to recognize this thing's taking root. These kids are beginning to buy into it because kids didn't want to miss class. Because if they missed class, they would understand, man, I might get, I might get a little bit behind. By, the, by March of the following year, every single kid in the class was reading and doing math at a first grade level. And by the end of their first grade year, almost the entire class was at a third grade level. And, and what, what it is is that Crystal created an environment where she had, she had made a decision about them, you are going to become third graders. She, she didn't reckon on their past circumstances or their skill level. She established a new identity, and then they lived up and grew into the identity that she was giving them. The other thing that, that she did was she created a new community where people addressed one another based on their new identity, not the kid from down the street, but a scholar. And the results are unbelievable. This is exactly what Paul is doing in Ephesians. Do you know in Ephesians, we read this in week one, in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, Paul says, I, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, right, write to you, and how does he describe them? As saints, your Bible might say, holy ones in Ephesus. Paul is addressing them in their new identity. And Paul is wanting you and I to live out of, to become who we already are in Christ. 
that we have been given a new identity and Paul wants us to live out this new identity of being a new race of humans, a new humanity, to quote Paul in Ephesians 2.15. And so what is it that Paul actually means by this phrase, one new humanity? It says in Ephesians 4 verse 17, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, who was it that Paul was actually writing this letter to? Anyone? He was writing it to the Gentiles, wasn't he? I mean, look, look, you can see it in Ephesians 3.1. I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. In Ephesians 2.11, therefore, remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth. Now Paul's writing to them and saying, don't live as the Gentiles. But wait, I am a Gentile. How can I not live as a Gentile? Because you're telling me not to be a Gentile, but I'm actually a Gentile. Like, how do I do that? You know, I, 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 grew, up in, uh, I grew up in Northern Ireland, which is... Uh, the, <laughs> Northern Ireland is one of the most conflicted, confusing places to live and grow up because nobody really knows who they are, right? Are you a Brit or are you Irish? Are you a loyalist or a nationalist? Are you a prod or are you a tag or a Catholic, right? That's a derogatory term. I shouldn't have said that. <clears throat> and like there's this like total confusion, And what Paul is trying to help his readers understand is that you have a whole new identity. You're not Irish. You're not British. You're not American. You're not somebody that wears Levi's and only drinks, you know, third wave coffee, right? Like, like, no, no, no. You have a whole new identity. You are a Christian. You are a follower of Jesus. You are a member of the household of faith. You are a part of this new race of humanity formed in the image of Christ. And you also happen to be American. Right? And what Paul is trying to help us understand is that you have been given a new identity. Now, I, I don't have time to, I'm going to have to skip through some of my notes because I've got to get to the most important part. But sin corrupts us, right? Remember we drew that thing? Sin fractures and divides and corrupts and makes us into something that we were never intended to be. And Paul in his writings to Romans says, you know, hey, that was the first Adam that brought through sin all of that chaos and confusion into creation. But there's a second Adam named Jesus Christ who brings with him a whole new version of humanity. And this is what Paul is trying to help us understand in this letter to the Ephesians, is that you and I, this new identity, this new human race, this new way of being human, like it's totally different than what you see around you in the world in which you live. In fact, new humanity was birthed by the first new human, really the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And it's why we as a church say, hey, we're going to live out God's incredible, extraordinary story. We're going to do that, though, the way Jesus showed us, because Jesus is the perfect human being. Jesus is the model of who you and I, as part of his new humanity, this purpose that God has for us. This is who we are called to be. We're called to be and to live like Jesus, as part of this new humanity, a new race of humans that's completely different than everything else we see around us. So rather than hatred, there's love. 
Rather than greed, there's generosity. Rather than lies, there's honesty and truthfulness, right? And like, there ought to be something different about how, who we are and how we live. Remember, new identity in a new family, what, for what purpose? For this new humanity. That, that when people look at you and I as a community of believers, they ought to see and experience something radically different, something that doesn't look like it's from this earth and from this world, but it's from another place and another world. A new version of humanity. This is what Paul is trying to help us understand. And so the question that I want to answer today and what I want to leave us with as we maybe begin to land the plane is that how does all of this play out in the lives of followers of Jesus? What does it mean? Okay, I have a new identity and I'm a part of a new family and the purpose behind all of that is this new version of humanity that we get to live out and get to display to the world in which we live. But how does that play out? What does that look like in my life, in your life? What does it look like in our community of faith? And Paul actually addresses it. And I want you to, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter four. And we're gonna read just a few verses and I'm gonna comment on a few things and then we'll land the plane. But it says this in Ephesians chapter four in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, we read that a little bit earlier in the NIV, and in the NIV, it said, actually, I need to insist on this. You're not to live as the Gentiles live. You're not to live the way the Gentiles live with self at the center. No, 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 it's no longer self at the center. It's God, it's Jesus Christ at the center. You are in him, and he is in you. And because he is, you fundamentally live a different way. And so there's a different way that Paul is saying, you and I ought to do life as followers of Jesus, it's interesting that he says there, in, their, in the futility of their minds. And one of the things you're going to see as you read through Paul's writings, you're going to see it this morning, is that Paul is constantly addressing the way you think affects the way you behave. Right? Your worldview, what you hold at the core of your belief system, the core of who you are, will fundamentally dictate the way in which you live out your life, the way in which you treat people. And so Paul is saying, you see the connection. Don't walk this way. Walk this way. Don't do that. Don't walk that way. Right? And, don't, and you're going to see this. Don't, don't allow your thinking to influence that. And so he goes on in Ephesians in verse 18. He says this. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And then look at this due to their hardness of hearts. So Paul is saying, listen, they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God, right? Life as God designed it, uh, right? And it's due to or because of their hardness of heart. He goes on, they have, as a result of this hardness of heart, this darkening of their mind, this alienation from God, they have become callous or dead, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And what Paul is saying in this, these verses right here is he says, listen, the root of the issue is your heart. And you, you know this verse, right? You, you've heard this verse, I'm sure, many, many times. That, that 
the root of the issue, right, are out of the heart, what? Flow the issues of life. Like, there's something about our heart. Now, not our physical heart, but for the Hebrew mind, the heart was the epicenter of your existence. It was the core of who you are. It was out of the heart that your appetites and your desires would spring. And so what Paul is saying here, in fact, the Greek word for for hardness right there is a stone that's harder than marble. They couldn't imagine anything harder than marble. I mean, there's structures that were built of marble during that season and even prior to that season that are still standing because of their hardness, their resilience. And what Paul is saying is that this hardness of heart, right, this stone that's harder than marble, right, has the inability to respond to the truth of God. And because the heart is hard and does not respond to the truth of God's word, what it produces in us is is darkness in understanding. It produces deadness, right, in how we live our life. In fact, in Romans, he says this. He says, they will call good evil and evil good. Have you seen that in culture? That things that you and I, as followers of Jesus, based on the word of God, would look at and say, man, that is evil, they might call good. Or, or that that is good, and it would be called evil in our culture. Where's that coming from? It's a hardness of heart. It's a heart that's not open to, right, the truth of God and the truth of God's word. And what it produces in us is a darkness of understanding, a deadness in our hearts that leads to all kinds of recklessness. And I'm sure you have been around people who, man, they're just throw off restraint. I don't care anymore. I'm just going to pursue whatever desire is in my heart. Whatever appetite is in there, I'm just going to go after that. Why? Because of hardness of heart. And so Paul, he's saying, hey, listen, we got to live a different way. And where it starts is in the heart. In fact, for Jesus, the heart of the problem was the problem of the heart, always. And it's why Jesus doesn't, he doesn't bypass behavior, but he goes through your behavior to get right to the heart. Go read the Beatitudes. Go read the Sermon on the Mount, right? You say it's wrong to murder someone. I say it's wrong to have hate where? In your heart. God's always going after our heart, And so Paul, he continues, he says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And isn't that interesting? Because Paul says there, he says, that's not the way you learned Christ. He didn't say that's not the way you learned about Christ. You see, in our American In our American world, it's not dissimilar from the Greek world, which was all about education, all about understanding, right? All about being the smartest person in the room. And it wasn't about me having had knowledge about Christ. This is what Paul is saying. No, no, no. It's about knowing, loving, experiencing Christ, his essence, right? They learned about him. They learned about his life, right? His ethics, his thinking, his ways. Just to be a little bit cheesy, WWJD, 
Some of you are like, what's that? What would Jesus do, right? Like, it was all about Jesus. Wait, Paul addressed that earlier, didn't he? He says, he's the chief cornerstone, right? He's the one upon which all of this is built. And so Paul's coming back to say Jesus is the subject, Jesus is the teacher, Jesus is the atmosphere because it's in him that we're taught, right? It's in him that we discover truth. This is why Paul never describes or very rarely describes himself as a Christian, but 216 times says, no, it's in him, in Christ, in the beloved. He is also in me. St. Patrick. (laughs) See what I did there? He captured it so well in the fifth century. And he said this, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort me and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. It's about Jesus. You are in him. Your new identity, this new humanity that he's creating is in him. And then Paul says this, because Paul gives us some practical advice. How do I do this? How do I make Christ the center? This is what he says, verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And Paul, I don't think he was a fashion guy, but Paul often refers to putting off, putting on, Clothe yourself in, don't clothe yourself in this. Clothe yourself in that. And you see it in his writings to Ephesians. You see it in his writings to Colossians. You see it in his writings to the Romans and the Galatians. He's constantly trying to help us understand you are to become who who you already are in Christ Jesus. How do I do that, Paul? You take off. You put off the old self. And this is what Paul's trying to say. He says, I need you to put off your old self, not just your behaviors, but your desires and your appetites. You gotta shed that stuff. You gotta let that stuff go. And and, and what's so hard about it is that, that the old self is so comfortable and so warm and it might look nasty and it might stink to high heaven, right? But it's just me, it's just comfortable. And Paul says, that's not who you are. You're to become who who you already are in Christ Jesus. So I want you to take off the old. Take off the nasty. And then he says this. He goes on and he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now isn't that interesting that Paul says, be renewed not in your mind, but in the spirit of your mind. You see, for the Greeks, it was all about their thinking, you know? If they could think their way out, if they could be the most intellectual person in the room, they could reason their way from here to there, and they'll just become a new and a better person. 
And what brain science is teaching us, Dr. Leaf, Carolyn Leaf has a lot to say about this, is that your and my brain isn't just the epicenter of our thinking, but so often our appetites and our desires, our emotions actually spring out of not just our heart, but they're engaged and involved in our mind and our thinking. Like I can't just think my way. You know, I hate this phrase in our culture. If you think it, you can do it. I try that every January and it never works. Why? Because I have an appetite. I have an appetite for carbohydrates. Get behind me, Satan. Right? And what Paul is saying is that you need to renew the spirit of your mind. Why do I do that? You can't. You cannot do it in your own strength. And this is why Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, don't copy the behavior and the customs of the world, but let God, what, transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. What are you saying? I need his word and I need his spirit. And you see this throughout all of Paul's writings. I need his word. I need, to, I need my heart to be impacted by the truth of his word. I need the hardness of my heart to be penetrated and to be softened, to be convicted, to be challenged, to be changed by the truth of God's word. But God is so good to us that he says, you're going to need my spirit with you. And he says, I give you my spirit. Isn't that what Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 1? that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's the guarantee, the promise that what God has said in his word will come true because you are sealed, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Put off, renew the spirit of your mind. And then, and this is what God does for us. God says, I got a new garment for you. I want you to put on Put on, I need a little help. And the Holy Spirit helps us. You see, God weaves it, but we have the responsibility to wear it. Right? Like God gives us this, remember we talked about this? It's a gift of grace. But I gotta put that thing on. I gotta work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Like, I gotta put off the old. In fact, Paul, in his language, actually uses the strongest language possible. You gotta murder sin in your life because if you don't murder it, it will murder you. Sin is not something to be messed about with, it's a roaring lion that will rip your head off because its, its goal is your death and your destruction, your annihilation, your separation from God. So put it off. Renew the spirit of your mind and then put on this gift, this new garment that God gives you. Paul says this in Colossians, clothe yourselves with tender hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive one another who offends you. Remember that the Lord forgave you. You must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love. You and I, we can't do this in our own strength. But if we're going to be 
new humans, a new version of humanity that God puts on display for the world to watch. We gotta put off. We gotta let go of some sin. We gotta let go of some things that would try to snare us and trap us and keep us from being who God's already called us to be in his son, Jesus Christ. We gotta allow him to renew our minds through his word and through the Holy Spirit who he gives to us as a seal and a guarantee. You're not gonna do it in your own strength. You're not gonna muscle your way there. It's actually, we're gonna discover this in week five, it's actually about repentance. It's actually about a life of surrender to this is who I already am. Why am I messing around with sin? Why am I messing around with this old identity and the lies of the confusion of the enemy when the Lord is inviting us to become who we already are in him? And so I want you just to close your eyes, lock yourself in with Jesus. And I just want to ask you maybe two groups of questions, two groups of people, two questions. Really the f- first group of people is, man, maybe you're sitting here listening to my voice and you're listening to what Paul's writing to us out of this letter to Ephesians. And man, you don't have the new status, right? It's still, man, I've got an old status. I'm, I'm dead in my sins and my transgressions. And today, Jesus is offering you new status, new identity, new life. Adoption into his family as a son and as a daughter, completely forgiven and set free in his son, Jesus. And it's a gift. Oh, it's a gift. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You just receive it. How do I receive it, Gareth? Well, you just, first and foremost, acknowledge my sin. I I just can't do this in my own strength. I acknowledge the fact that Jesus is the one who lived the life I could never live, who went to the cross and died on my behalf, took the penalty and payment for my sin. Why did he do all that? So that you could be free, so that you could have a new status and a new identity and a new relationship with him. And if that's you this morning, man, would you have the, the boldness, the courage just to slip your hand up this morning You're just saying to Jesus, I want that relationship. I want to receive that forgiveness. I want that new life, that new identity, that new status that comes from being in relationship with you. If that's you this morning, would you simply slip up your hand? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer, but I want you to just pray your prayer. Prayer is just talking to God. And it simply goes like this. Lord, I just confess my sinfulness, sinful nature, and my utter need of you. And I recognize, Jesus, you are the Son of God, that what you did on the cross allows me to be forgiven, but not just forgiven, to be adopted as a son, as a daughter, into your household of faith, your family. Amen. Here's the second question for a second group. As we're in this space, what is it that you maybe feel the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you got to put some things off. I want to put something new on you, but first, you got to put some things off. And the thing about the old wardrobe is that it's just so comfortable. 
And, and it's something that we have to keep coming back to. I'm gonna, nope, I'm taking that thing off. Nope, I'm taking that thing off. Nope, I'm taking that thing off because I'm somebody new in Jesus. And so this morning, if that's you this morning and you're simply saying, man, I need to put some things off this morning. I want you just to, just as a, just a step of faith, just a response to Jesus in his word to simply say, that's me. And there's some things, I'm gonna do some business with Jesus this week. I'm gonna put some things off. It might mean, man, I wanna to talk to a pastor. I wanna get some prayer, but man, I am, I am just gonna deal with this. I'm gonna do some work this week. And I'm gonna take off and I'm gonna put on. If that's you this morning, would you simply slip up your hand in response to Jesus? Say, that's me. And so Lord Jesus, this morning, you see us, you know us. <laughs> Who are we to think that we could hide anything from you? And Lord, in your grace, you say, why don't you just come to me? Just take it off. Take off the old man, the old nature, the old appetites, the old desires. Renew your, the spirit of your mind and then put on this new identity. And so Lord, today, Lord, as folks, Father God, spend time with you this week, putting off and putting on, Lord Jesus, I pray that you will minister, Father God, and cause us to become who we already are in you. In Jesus' name, amen.